All right, welcome everybody to our last night. Last week was supposed to be the last session, but it was canceled due to the snow. So you guys get extra credit for showing up for this uh, extra night. We don't have the kids program going on or any of that, but uh, you guys showed up anyway. And uh, we left off on page 38, but, but turn to page 37. We'll pick up on 37 and uh, we'll finish off the notes tonight if we have any time left at the end for questions that may have come up over the entire semester. I don't know whether we'll have that time or not. I was reminded when last week uh, I mentioned the, the beginnings of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, and you all remember that the Southern Baptist Convention really started over the issue of slavery that there was something called the Triennial Convention, but then the Southern Baptist Convention was a split off of that. Uh, so it's a sad history, but that's the truth. That's how it actually ha- actually started. The Southern Baptist Convention today is actually quite uh, cons- has become quite conservative and Bible believing, and uh, in many respects is highly recommended. Uh, but for many decades. In the mid-last century, the Southern Baptist Convention had tended toward liberalism. And you know what I mean by liberalism, theological liberalism. That is, we don't believe the Bible is without error, that the Bible has errors in it. That some of the miraculous claims that the Bible makes didn't happen. You have professors at seminaries supported by the convention teaching those kinds of things. I went on for decades. Uh, So much so that people who believe the Bible is without error and believed all that it affirms, including its miracles, uh, didn't believe that they could cooperate with the Southern Baptist Convention, could be a part of it. It was that bad. And what I was reminded of uh, was that, uh, in fact, Gary reminded me of this because he knew this history, but the church that started our church So many of you know our church was planted out of another church, Huron Baptist Church in Flat Rock. But Huron Baptist Church and its pastor, Steve Thomas, who's still there, uh, he came there in 1983. And he started uh, preaching for them just to fill their pulpit because they didn't have a pastor. And they were a Southern Baptist church. And he was a student finishing up at Detroit uh, Baptist Theological Seminary. And the few people that were left at that church, it had dwindled over the years and it was just about dead, but they wanted to keep it going. They didn't have a pastor. They called the superintendent of the state convention to say, can you send us a pastor? Can you send us some guys? And they were, I think, tired of this church because it was just declining. And so they just ignored that request completely. So these guys knew, heard that there was this seminary, Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary. They called them. It's not a Southern Baptist seminary. But they called them and said, you got anybody that can come and preach for us? They made an announcement in chapel. Any of you guys that want to get some experience preaching, there's this opportunity. Steve Thomas, now Pastor Thomas, went down there and started filling the pulpit. They loved him. Uh, if you've ever heard him preach, he's a terrific preacher. And here's this young guy... Uh, But he had no intentions of staying there. He was just filling the pulpit for them. 
So he did that for several months, and then they approached him and said, you know, hey, would you ever consider being our pastor? And his answer was, well, you're a Southern Baptist church. I can't do that. Uh, so you would need to leave the Southern Baptist Convention in order for me to consider that. And they said, really? Wow, we didn't, we didn't have any idea that there were these kinds of problems. So tell us about it. So he did. And then they had a meeting. Now, I was not there. I came to the church just a few years after this, but I heard it from Pastor Thomas and from the other two deacons that were at this meeting. The three of them had a meeting with the state representative for the Southern Baptist Convention. And they wanted to, the deacons did, they wanted to ask directly, are these things true? Is the convention really in this kind of liberal shape? Uh, And so the guy was trying to assure them that everything's fine with the convention and all of that. Pastor Thomas kept grilling him. Is this book, he's got a Bible in his hand, he says, is this book without error? And then the guy would talk some more, and he would talk around it. Real politician. And then say, okay, I got that. Is this without error? And I'm told he had to do that three or four times. Finally, the guy, just kind of exasperated, he had a Bible on his lap, and he put his hand on his Bible, and he said, men, this book is totally reliable. That was the word he used. He couldn't bring himself to say without error. He couldn't bring himself to say inerrant. Because he didn't believe that. And the schools were not were not teaching that. So as a result of that, these they only had two deacons. These two deacons saw what Pastor Thomas was telling them. And then they went to the church, what was left of it. There weren't that many people. But they voted as a church to leave the Southern Baptist Convention and become an independent Baptist church. A couple of years later, my wife and I happened, won't bore you with that, but in God's providence, he led us to that church. And then 16 years later, they kicked us out to start to start this church. So uh, that's the, the history. So I have a little bit of history indirectly with the uh, Southern Baptist Convention. Now, the good news is, that's the bad news. The good news is, the Southern Baptist Convention has had a resurgence a theological resurgence that is an amazing story, an absolutely amazing story about uh, some very uh, courageous, uh, conservative, theologically conservative people who stood up against the liberalism. And it took a while and a lot of heartache, but they got it done. And they removed the liberals piece by piece, one by one, from the machinery of the of the convention. And they were able to take over even the schools, which is most important, because that's where, of course, the pastors are being trained. Uh, Southern Seminary is their flagship seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And the president there is a guy named Al Mohler. And uh, if you you could just Google Al Mohler, M-O-H-L-E-R. But Al Mohler, anything you read from him, you can take it as gospel pretty much. Just the guy's <coughs> right on. And he's been there now for about 25 years. But he came in as a conservative after they removed a liberal president. Faculty quit on the spot. Left, started their own seminary. I mean, it was a, it was a mess. Students protested. But they got through all of that. And now Southern Seminary is, is rock solid. Uh, it's a, it's a very good seminary. The convention is in good shape. So, that's a, that's a good story. Thanks for reminding me about uh, about that history. And uh, 
and the courage of those people, but also the courage of Pastor Thomas and the folks at this little church in Flat Rock to do what they did. All right, page 37. In fact, I said page 37, forgive me. But we'll we'll come to page 37, but I'd like you to actually go back to page 1, the very first page of your notes. And at the top, it says course description. Sorry. That's all right. Mine's at home on the counter. Okay, on the counter. I put it right there with my phone so I wouldn't forget it. Oh, that's good. And uh, not lining your birdcage. It's actually on your counter, okay? Right? Okay. I'll take your word for it. You see that course description, first page there? And I gave, on our very first night, four things that a study of history does for you. Look at that first one. Second paragraph, the study of history develops an ability to anticipate trends before they occur. Historical events occur in a pendulumatic fashion, you know, back and forth. That is, men tend to behave in reaction to current events. This coupled with the fact that, as historian George Santayana said, history repeats itself, allows one possessing a working knowledge of history to often see that we've been here before and then take action as appropriate. Now, I wanted to remind you of that because as we come back now to page 37, that becomes very real, this idea that we've been here before. And if you know history, it'll help you then make uh, evaluations and give you discernment about things that are going on in the in the current environment. Absent that, without that history, without knowing things that have gone on in the past, then everything that's happening in the present looks new to you. And you don't have any frame of reference to make a judgment about whether this is good or, or bad. And so you have to experience it yourself and go through it. Whereas if you knew history and you knew that this had happened before, under different names with different people and different circumstances, but it's the same thing, then you wouldn't have to go through the trial and error and experience the problem yourself. So absent that historical perspective, we can come to think of our form of Christianity as original. So what do I mean by our form of Christianity? I'm talking about the way we do things. That's what I mean when I say form, the way we do things. And a lot of times people can just grow up in church and they get accustomed to a way of doing things. They get accustomed to their form of of Christianity. And without history to inform them, then they think this is the way it's always been. Without knowing where it came from, who developed it, any of that. Worse, they don't know where it came from. They think it's always been that way. And because they always think that it's always been that way, then what makes that worse is then this becomes the biblical way. This is the biblical form of doing things if you don't have that historical frame of reference. Les Olala used to be the president of Northland International University in Wisconsin. He was at our church a couple of years ago Uh, October of 2015, some of you remember him. Uh, 
And he's he's just a guy who can just uh, take these kinds of concepts and just make them very simple. He's a very folksy guy, even though he's a president of a, of a university. And I remember him saying years ago that this is the way it goes with most people, and how they get uh, how they get fixated on their form, their approach to ministry, their approach to Christianity. He said, take, for example, you get a command in the Bible. God gives us a command to do something. Evangelize. Okay, so that's a command. And then what he says is, and then we develop a method to do that. A way to carry out that command. So, as an example, go door to door, knocking on doors. And telling people, you know, I'm here to give you the gospel. Uh, so develop that method. And, you know, we know that Jehovah's Witnesses do that, but uh, the first Baptist church I was ever a part of, you know that I grew up Pentecostal, but the first Baptist church I was ever a part of in my early 20s, uh, once a week, the entire church was browbeaten by the pastor to come out for door-to-door calling. And so we went out once a week, and we knocked on and we knocked on doors, and we annoyed people to, to, to high heaven. But that was the considered way to do it in many, many, and in some it still is. This is the way to do it. So you got to command, evangelize. You develop a method. For example, go door to door. And then over time, that method becomes your tradition. You ask somebody, you know, why do you do this? Why do we do this door to door thing? And the answer is we've always done it that way. And tradition given more time becomes dogma, he said. It's not just we've always done it this way. It becomes Paul did it this way. The Bible does it, did it this way in the first century. And so the truth is the door-to-door method is not something they were doing in the first century. Uh, it was something developed you know, many centuries later. But without a historical perspective, you think this is the way it's always happened. And if this is the way it's always happened, then churches who don't do it, well, then what's their problem? They've departed from some very important dogma. In your mind, Paul did it this way. Why aren't you doing it this way? So, one of the first points I want to make for you tonight is that we are not to be trying to recover the forms of the first century. The way they did things in the first century. Now, I just want you to think about that for a bit, you know, and whether or not you agree with that. Should we be trying to recover the way they did things in the first century? My answer to that is no. And the reason my answer to that is no is because the New Testament does not lock us into any particular culture to practice Christianity. Christianity, unlike in in the New Testament, unlike Judaism in the Old Testament, which was locked into a culture, right? That was locked into a particular nation and a chosen people. Israel and the the Jews and God God gave the laws and this created the culture in which they practiced their faith. But now Jesus says, this is going to move from one nation... And it's going to go to all nations. That's the Great Commission. His last words were, go and make disciples of all nations. 
and baptize them and teach them to observe everything that I've commanded. So now it's got to go to all nations. Well, how are you going to do that? If you're locked into a particular culture and it's got to be done in this form. So I'm convinced that the New Testament does not require that. And not only that, it requires we don't do that if we're actually going to carry out the Great Commission. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 42, if you want to jot that down, Acts 5, 42. Uh, Acts 5, 42. And I have, I have these notes in our Newcomer's Orientation Manual. So if you've taken our Newcomer's Orientation, then this might sound familiar. Or if you take it in the future, then you'll, you'll hear this portion again. But Acts uh, 5, 42 says that the apostles taught uh, from house to house. They taught from house to house. So you've got in that one verse, uh, Acts 5.42, you've got a function that they carried out, teaching. They taught. That was the function. That's what they were doing. And then you've got a form how they did it. It says house to house to house. But in that, we're not told whether they taught in every house or just some, whether they taught both believers and unbelievers, whether they went inside or they stayed outside the house, whether neighbors were invited. We're not told any of that. Most of the time in the New Testament, you're given what to do, the function, but you're not even given a form how to do it. And on the few occasions where you are given a form how to do it, you're told this is how they did it. You're not told much about it. The information you're given is partial and it's incomplete. Further, in that very same verse, Acts 5.42, it not only says that they taught house to house, but it doesn't give you much information about that. But then it also says, and they also uh, taught in the temple courts. So even in the same context, you're given different ways of doing this. So even in New Testament times in the first century, they had different ways of carrying out the same function. So uh, I have made the case, and our church has actually done its work over the years with this principle that the New Testament gives you freedom in form. That the way you do ministry, the way you do ministry is not explicitly given to you in the New Testament. You're told what to do, you're not told how to do it. And I think, and I'll ask this question when I get to heaven, you know, why is that? But here's my answer to it. Because if in the first century, 2,000 years ago, the Bible attempted to give you this is how you do it, it's going to be very difficult to give a prescription for how you do it that's going to be able to be done in every culture in the world. So my own view is the reason that we're short on those specifics is precisely so that we know what to do, but then we can go into various cultures and do it different ways. Sir? Even thousands and thousands of years later. Yeah, exactly. Here we are 2,000 years later, and you can still carry out the same message. You can still perform the same functions. But time is not an inhibitor then, and location and culture are not an inhibitor because we're not locked in to these things. Now, why am I boring you with all of that? Uh, it's because 
when we come to page 37 and page 38. On page 37, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago the first Great Awakening and then the second Great Awakening. These were revivals. I told you that the first Great Awakening was a genuine revival uh, with lasting results based on proper theology and doctrine. Some great preachers, great preachers, were part of the first Great Awakening. Uh, Jonathan Edwards... Uh, George Whitfield. These were just great people that believed the Bible through and through, had a proper understanding of the gospel, and they proclaimed it, and people came to Christ in droves, and the Holy Spirit just moved upon people in an extraordinary way, and that was a revival, a genuine revival with long-lasting results. About 100 years later, in the mid-1800s, you had what's called the Second Great Awakening, though. In the middle of page 37, we saw a couple of weeks ago that it was a manufactured revival. And the key person that led the Second Great Awakening was Charles Finney. And I began to tell you a bit about Finney and Finney's erroneous beliefs. Some of those at the bottom of page 37. And then we left off on page 38. We left off in the middle of page 38, having considered Finney's view of justification. And here's what I want you to see, is that much of what our churches do today, or or many of our churches do today, comes from this guy, from Finney. And many people think that the way we do that, there's nothing there, uh, Tamara. Did you? Have to tell uh, you? Well, yeah. I, I mean, nobody noticed you going over there. Right? <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, we're we're out. Sorry. So, uh, a lot of what we do today in our churches comes from what Finney established. The people who don't know history don't know that. So they think this is the way it's always been done. They think this is the way Paul did it. So that danger I was telling you about earlier actually happens today. I'm going to to show you how. But a good bit of what many uh, people practice in church today comes from Finney's. So Finney's methodology, his methodology, middle of page 38. He said a, a revival is not a miracle or dependent on a miracle in any sense. It is a purely philosophic result of the right use of means. That's kind of wordy, but here's what he's saying. He's just saying that if you do it right, you'll get results. That's what he's saying. The right use of means. Use the right means rightly, and you'll be able to get it done. So Finney would actually do things like this. He would have these revival meetings and he would do things on purpose to say, you know, if you if, if anybody's ever done this, stand up. And so then they stand up. And he's getting them all he's getting them all physically involved in, in what he's doing because when he gets to the end of this thing, here's what he's going to do. He's going to give an invitation. 
And when he gives that invitation, what's he inviting people to do? Anybody know? Anybody seen this? Where you got a preacher, he preaches and he invites people, and what are they going to do? They're going to come forward. So he would, this is my word, he would manipulate the thing. He would use these means in order to produce the result. Get people to raise their hand, walk the aisle, come to, Tony said, the altar. He called it the anxious bench. But many people call it, yeah, the altar. Some of you have heard me say this before. You know, in our sanctuary, which was an elementary gym that we tried to make look sort of like a sanctuary, um, but whether it's ornate or not, we don't have, and we will never have at our church, an altar at the front. And the reason we won't have an altar is because what happens at an altar? Sacrifice. And what do we believe about sacrifice? We believe that there has been the sacrifice on the cross, right? The closest thing we will come to, to an altar is a cross. We actually have one up front. Because Christ, the, the cross is the altar upon which the Lamb of God was sacrificed on our behalf. But there's no ongoing sacrifice. So the good news is, you know, for our young ladies here, you know, if you get married, you're going to get married here, you can never get left at the altar. <laughs> there is no altar in our, in our place, okay? So, but that's why. There's actually a doctrinal reason for, for that. But Finney had that. People would go to the altar. They would go to the anxious bench. And he perfected doing this. If you do this, if you manipulate this, you can get people to do what you want them to do. So have any of you ever been to services where the preacher is going to get people to come forward? And they play the same song over and over and over and over again? As the instruments play in the background, every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around. Just as I am. And it's usually just as I am <laughs> is the song. And just as I am, I think, has six verses, but you think it had 600. <laughs> as much as it, you know, just play it over and over until you get people to, to come. It's manipulated. <coughs> you manipulate people emotionally. With the music, the preacher keeps, you know, changing the terms of the invitation. You get some people. We still have some more people out there. So if any of you are left-handed, come forward. <laughs> you know, you're going to get people to come. Uh, probably shouldn't tell you this, but I will. Uh, so I know this, this history. I'm keen to people manipulating uh, decisions from folks. And substituting that for a genuine move of the spirit on someone, and I and I can't abide participating in that. And if I'm in a service where that's happening, I'm not going forward. I may be going backward. I may be leaving, but I'm not going forward. My wife and I, back in the early '90s, when we were doing youth work, we went to a uh, camp in South North Carolina. The Wilds. Some of you are familiar with the place called The Wilds? We were at a place called The Wilds. It's a beautiful camp. Last night of camp, uh, it was really not camp. It was youth workers being trained. But in some ways, they treated it like a camp. If, you ever, if you've been to camp, you know how camp goes. There's a rhythm to the week. And they have a special speaker, an evangelist, 
And the, the idea is to build up to the final night. And the final night is the big night where everybody's going to come forward. He's going to get as many people as he can to come forward and literally throw a stick in the fire. That's the altar at camp. Come and throw a stick in the fire and make you know some kind of commitment. And okay. So that same rhythm was going on at this uh, for us. And we come to that last night, and the guy who ran the wilds at the time gives the message, and he starts to give this invitation at the end. And so some people go forward, and then there's still a bunch of people who haven't. So then he says something else, you know, if you got this issue or that issue, come forward. And then the songs are still playing, and then come forward some more, and come forward. Some more people go, and some more people go. And this goes on for like 30 minutes. There's about 200 people there. And at some point, 198 of those 200 are up front. There are two left. It's me and my wife. It's, it was the, one of the I'm serious, one of the hardest things I ever did in my life, because I'm not a rebel. I don't believe in being disrespectful, especially to someone who's preaching. But I can't do this. I'm not doing this. And so he's keeps going. You didn't need to get saved. And we had to walk. We walked out. We walked out. We got in our car, and uh, I, I don't know if we wept, but if we didn't weep, we were very close to weeping. It was that hard. Uh, so, I don't know whether you would have done that or whether you think it was right to do that, but I just couldn't participate in the manipulation. But there's a lot of that manipulation that goes on in our in our uh, churches, and it comes from Finney. It doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from Finney. But people who don't know history don't know that. So... We get people who come to our church sometimes. I've had this asked of me numerous times over the years. Why don't you give an altar call? And then I say, well, we don't have an altar. <laughs> and the good news is you never get left it. I tell them all that. <laughs> uh, so we don't have an altar. But no, really, uh, it's because, you know, a person doesn't have to come forward to get saved. They can get saved right where they are. And I don't want them to think that the act of coming forward has anything to do with their salvation. Because it doesn't. It, don't, it doesn't save you any more than being in your seat. What saves you is Christ. And the instrument by which that happens is your belief in Christ. So I very much believe in giving an invitation, but not an altar call. An invitation is inviting someone to trust Christ. So when we pray, and you guys have been here, you've heard me do that. And often we put on the screen, here are the things you need to do. You know, realize you're a sinner, recognize Christ died for your sin, repent of your sin, receive Jesus Christ into your life. We put that right on the screen. Let's bow, you can pray. I'm inviting you to do that. That's an invitation. You don't have to come forward and we don't manipulate it. You've heard the truth. Now if the Holy Spirit is moving upon your heart, then... Express your belief in Jesus when we when we pray to, to be saved. But people will afterwards say, why don't you do that? And they'll argue with me. There's something wrong with this church that it doesn't have an altar call. But the reason they think that is because of what I was saying. We think that our form of Christianity, note the form, the way we do it, is the way Paul did it. 
And we think that because we don't know much about history. And if we knew something about history, we'd know it came from this guy. It came from a guy who didn't have uh, orthodox doctrine, and he developed these manipulative ways to uh, get results. So as a result then of the Second Great Awakening and Finney's approach, you had a lot of very famous evangelists. You guys know what an evangelist is? Um, Dr. Combs at our church, retired New Testament scholar, seminary professor, he wrote a journal article years ago on what an evangelist is. You should, if you want to read that sometime, it's excellent. All the stuff he writes is excellent. It was really excellent. And a hint, it's not the dude that calls himself an evangelist today. An evangelist in the Bible was a guy who went and planted a church. It was not a guy who went and preached a series of five nights or seven nights of sermons and then went to the next place and did the same thing and did the same thing. But you've got lots of guys who are that. They are evangelists. And that's what they do. And out of the Second Great Awakening and the Finney methodology, you had a number of evangelists who became very famous out of that. Bottom of page 38, D.L. Moody, Dwight Lyman Moody. Moody was an evangelist. Moody, (laughs) this is a quote, my theology, I didn't know I had one. So notice, the emphasis is more on methodology than theology. I didn't know I had a theology, he says. Moody judged his sermons by whether they were fit to convert sinners with. His methodology, top of page 39, he said, it makes no difference how you get a man to God, provided you get him there. You see the pragmatism, right? I should have told you this. Moody, before he was converted, before he became a Christian, noticed that he was a shoe salesman. So this, the sales uh, background com- comes in handy sometimes when you're an evangelist. It was Moody's achievement to help ensure the future of evangelicalism by adaptation. Already before his rise to prominence, revivalism had been altering its character. Moody observed the direction of change, identified himself with it, organized it, and accelerated. So what that's saying is he took what Finney started and he took it to the next level. Moody did. Then you got another famous evangelist, Billy Sunday. He had been a professional baseball player. Sunday had. His athleticism came into his evangelistic ministry because he's a guy who perfected the idea of running back and forth you know, and prancing back and forth and even, you know, standing on top of stuff and yelling. And he was just very theatrical and and uh, a lot of motion, a lot of movement. He was a very exciting guy to, to hear. So fired up. Fired up. Get you fired up. He's uh, so... Uh, who, who's Gordy? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. An entertainer. A showman. He said, what I'm paid for my work makes it only come to about $2 a soul. He's calculated. $2 a soul. 
I get less proportionately for the number I convert than any other living evangelist. Now, that was an answer to people criticizing how much money he was making off of these revivals. I believe, he said, there's no doctrine more dangerous than to convey the impression that a revival is something peculiar in itself and cannot be judged by the same rules of causes and effects as other things. Do you see that cause and effect thing? If you do it right, it comes out right. That's what he's saying. That's Finney's right use of means. So you have churches, particularly Baptist churches, for whom guys like Billy Sunday are absolute heroes. And you've got evangelists who seek to emulate Billy Sunday. One of those was a very good friend of mine when I was in high school. A friend of mine in high school, I was best man in his wedding. And he started going down the evangelist route when we were in our early 20s. Actually, he started when we were late in high school. He started listening to, then it was cassette tapes. They didn't have MP3s or any of that, cassette tapes. He started listening to cassette tapes of evangelists. Sure there weren't eight tracks. They might have been eight tracks. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. <laughs> All I know is we had to crank the thing before we were <laughs> So he started listening to that, and he started looking in the mirror, and he would practice sounding like these guys. He would then go whenever he could to go and see these guys and look in the mirror to have gestures like these. Now, these guys were these evangelist types. A guy named Curtis Hudson. I don't expect you to know who these people are. But a publication called The Sword of the Lord still exists. And The Sword of the Lord has all these guys in it. So John, this friend of mine, was doing that. And it was in my early 20s that as I'm studying the Bible, I'm seeing that God is sovereign in the way these things happen. We don't make it happen. He does it. We preach and then see what he does. We don't manufacture these things. I began to be troubled by the manipulation that I was seeing. So he and I, in our early 20s, had parted ways. To this day, John is on the evangelistic circuit, 30-some years later. He's on the board of the sword of the Lord. He is huge in these circles, huge. Virtually every week of his itinerary throughout the year is filled. He preaches to large crowds of people people at tent meetings and that kind of stuff. But this is what they do. This is what he's been doing for 30 years. He's been doing the Finney, Billy Sunday kind of thing. And he's a Billy Sunday kind of guy. He runs around, does the that kind of stuff. Okay. All right. So as we've gone through this history, one of the things that I hope you'll take out of it then is that you have now a better ability to look at things that are happening today and have at least some idea as to where they came from. And they didn't come from the first century church. They all had some kind of origin to them, and Finney was the origin of much of what we do today. All right, middle of page 39. Early Baptist groups. There are black Baptist groups, the National Baptist Convention, the Progressive National Baptist Convention. Martin Luther, Martin Luther King Jr., nearly all the prominent black religious and political leaders are affiliated with one of, of those two. They're the so-called primitive Baptists who oppose the use of all extra-biblical methods of evangelism and mission, such as Sunday schools, missions boards, 
So this is the opposite of Finney, the absolute opposite. You know, Finney is just get it done, whatever works, pragmatism. These guys are, no, you can't do anything. You can't do anything that's not explicitly said in the Bible. So Sunday school is not in the Bible. We're not having Sunday school. You guys remember several weeks ago I made a distinction between extra-biblical and unbiblical? Remember that? Sunday school is extra-biblical. It's outside the Bible, but it's not contrary to the Bible. It's not unbiblical. But these guys didn't make that distinction. The disciples of Christ and the churches of Christ, they're put here under early Baptist groups because they splinter off of the Baptists. Their founder, Alexander Campbell, advocated the abandonment of denominationalism, of creeds, of confessions. As a result of his aberrations, he formed the Disciples of Christ in 1827. Now, uh, Alexander Campbell and his beliefs came to be known as Campbellism. Uh, Those who followed him were Campbellites. But here's his major distinctive doctrine. You have to be baptized to be saved. And you see the name of his followers were called the Disciples of Christ and the Churches of Christ. Do you see that? Bottom of page 39. So do you guys, you'll see today churches that are Church of Christ. That comes from here. It comes from Alexander Campbell. The idea that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. The churches of Christ, in the, I believe it was in the 60s, had a split over the use of instruments, musical instruments in worship. The original churches of Christ, and to this day, those that are, didn't split off, do not use musical instruments, not a piano, not a guitar, nothing, because they don't find that mentioned in the New Testament. So that's another one of those extra-biblical, failing to see that distinction. I don't see instruments in the Bible. We can't use instruments. I take that back. I don't see instruments in the New Testament. You see them in the Old Testament, but not in the New Testament. So we don't use them. So you go to a Church of Christ, Trenton Church of Christ, I think, is a cappella. You go to the Trenton Church of Christ, you go in, and when they sing, they just it's just voices. Uh but they had to split over that, and those that believed in the use of instruments or came to believe in the use of instruments still believe you have to be baptized to go to heaven. But they believe you can use musical instruments. Most of them are called Christian churches. So Twin Oaks Christian Church is a church of Christ. It's a Campbellite church. Uh, LifeBridge South Point Community you know what the full name is? South Point Community Christian Church that's the Christian Church idea came out of the Church of Christ you have to be baptized to go to heaven there's a website called ChristianChurchToday.com ChristianChurchToday.com and it's a website devoted to these kinds of churches that came out of Campbell, Campbellite. Um, they have a little section that tells their history. It mentions Alexander Campbell right in it. And then they've got a church locator. So if you 
put in, I want a church in Woodhaven or I want a church in Trenton, these churches will come up. Trenton Church of Christ will come up. South Point will come up. Twin Oaks will come up. Why? Because these are Campbellite churches. All right, page 40. Other early groups, Baptist General Conference, or what are called the Swedish Baptists, settled in the Midwest, in places like Minnesota. If you've heard of John Piper, John Piper is a retired now pastor in Minneapolis, Minnesota. His church, Bethlehem Baptist Church, was part of the Baptist General Conference. Um, really just people came from Sweden they were Baptist they established some of their own churches that's really all that is German Baptist groups Church of the Brethren if you've ever heard of that the Brethren churches Um, these are Baptistic churches but a lot of times there's an ethnicity the Swedish Baptist and the Germans if you look down at D there the Grace Brethren churches they split off, uh, split with the old brethren. That's point C. They're Calvinists and they're headquartered in Winona Lake, Indiana. They operate Grace College and Seminary. Now, Grace College and Seminary, Dr. Combs, the aforementioned Dr. Combs, most of you know him, he got his doctoral degree from there, from Grace Seminary in Winona Lake. Uh, as did several of the other guys at Detroit Baptist uh, Theological Seminary. And then you've got Baptists and their approach toward, it says modernism there. When you see the word modernism, it means liberalism. So Baptists and their approach toward liberalism. Toward the turn of the century, the Northern Baptist Convention, so you had the Southern Baptists and now you got the Northern Baptists. Remember in 1845 they split over the issue of slavery. You got the Northern Baptist Convention, but it began to articulate liberal modernist views like evolution, higher criticism, social gospel, and its institutions of higher learning, most notably the University of Chicago. All right, just think about that for a bit. The University of Chicago started as a Baptist institution, as part of the Northern Baptist. There are a bunch of these institutions that people don't realize that they actually had these religious roots to them, but they've long since, unfortunately, left those religious roots. Many Baptists became vocal opponents of this modernism, liberalism, and they ultimately formed their own Baptist associations, fundamental Baptist associations. So this is where the idea of a fundamentalist comes from. Because out of the Northern Baptist Convention, because it was imbibing liberalism, you had people who split off of that and they started, you see A there, the fundamental fellowship. It's a group within the Northern Baptist Convention in 1920, led by William Bell Riley and Jasper Massey. At its inaugural meeting, its first meeting, the term fundamentalist was coined. So that's where it comes from, 1920. Fundamentalists were people who then uh, believed in the fundamentals of the faith, like the inerrancy of the Bible, virgin birth of Christ, bodily resurrection, his physical return to, to earth, his, uh, his blood atonement on the cross. In fact, the five I just gave you are the famous five fundamentals of the faith. And those who adhere to those are called fundamentalists. But that's where it came from. Then you had a group called the Baptist Bible Union, a fellowship of fundamental ba- pastors led by, again, Riley, T.T. T. Shields, 
was a guy out of Toronto, uh, Ontario, and J. Frank Norris in 1923. It didn't last long due to major embarrassments within a, a few years. Now, major embarrassments like what? J. Frank Norris. Yikes. You ever want to read a history of a dude? This guy. Flamboyant, showman, huge crowds. I'm not making this up. J. Frank Norris pastored two churches at the same time. One in Dallas, Texas, and one in Detroit, Michigan. He pastored two churches, one in Detroit and one in Dallas. This is before airfare, air travel. He traveled by train. Flamboyant, huge churches in both places. He preached a sermon uh, in Dallas, in his Dallas church, against the mayor of Dallas. And something that the mayor of Dallas did, and he preached a sermon denouncing this guy. The guy's name was, his last name was Chips. And, and Mayor Chips shows up at his office to confront him about this. And they have some kind of confrontation. And exactly what happened is confusing. But this is what is everybody knows happened. One of those guys wound up shot. Norris shot him. Norris was acquitted because he said it was self-defense, but Chips had no weapon. Norris shot the guy. So when we say some major embarrassments, and over the decades you've had these fundamental Baptist leaders that have just been embarrassments a lot of times, honestly. It's really sad because what they believe is right. But the way they go about it is horrible. So you got guys like Norris and people who got emulate him with a real attitude and all of that. So I'm going to throw this out there just as another example, a little more, more, little more recent. But many of you know Bob Jones University, and uh, founded by Bob Jones Sr., an evangelist in the Billy Sunday mold. He founded. University in the 1920s. It's now in Greenville, South Carolina. It started in northern Florida, then moved to uh, Cleveland, Tennessee, and then moved to Greenville, South Carolina. And then his son, Bob Jones Jr., took over after he died. Bob Jones III took over after he died. Bob Jones IV didn't want to. So they had a fifth child named Stephen. How a Stephen got in there instead of a Bob, nobody knows. <laughs> But Stephen was the president for a while, and now they've got, for the first time ever, a few years ago, a guy who's not a Jones, in Steve Pettit, who's the head of Bob Jones University. All right. Bob Jones Jr. was a guy who would do these embarrassing things. And I can still remember watching Tom Brokaw on NBC News one night during the Reagan administration. And the Reagan administration had refused to give a visa to a guy uh, named... Um, um, Ian Paisley, thank you. Ian Paisley. To come from Britain, from Ireland, over to Bob Jones to speak at their annual conference. Now, who's Ian Paisley? He was a member of Parliament, the British Parliament, but he was a vehement anti-Catholic. And if you know the wars that went on in, for decades in Northern Ireland between the Protestants and the Catholics, Ian Paisley was right in the middle of all of that. So... 
Paisley, and Paisley has said these bombastic things over there. I mean, he called the, the Catholics over there. I mean, this guy's a, he's a pastor. He's also a member of parliament, and he calls the Catholics, quote, papal scum. So he's, he said all that. They don't want to have, the Reagan administration won't give him a, uh, a visa. The Secretary of State at the time was a guy named Alexander Haig. And the State Department denied the visa. Bob Jones Jr. gets up in chapel. And he denounces the Reagan administration. He denounces the State Department. He denounces Secretary Haig. And he prays, Lord, smite him. Smite Secretary Haig, hip and thigh, bone and marrow, he says. Well, this makes the news. And I'm watching Tom Brokaw report this on NBC News. That the chancellor of Bob Jones University prayed that the Lord would smite hip and thigh, bone and marrow. And then I remember Brokaw going, he ends that segment by saying, at last report, Secretary Haig remains unsmitten. <laughs> Just that kind of stuff, okay? And I could go on, but I can't. Toward the Bible, page 40, the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches came out of the ruins of this Baptist Bible Union, and it still exists. And, and the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches overall for all of these years since you know, about 80 years or more, do the math, has uh, been a has been a good organization. And uh, a lot of very solid churches within it. The regular Baptist piece means Calvinist. Um, Evangel Baptist Church in Taylor is a is a GARBC church. Has been for, for decades. A lot of good churches. Conservative Baptist Association, that was the fundamental fellowship, but they renamed it in 1955 and came out of the Northern Baptist Convention. And then top of page 41, Baptist Bible Fellowship. Norris, the guy who shot Chips, set up his own fellowship, the World Baptist Fellowship, but in 1950, one of his assistants, G.B. Vick, and several other pastors formed the Baptist Bible Fellowship primarily due to uneasiness about Norris. They wanted to get away from him. So G.B. Vick was his assistant. He had these churches in Detroit and Dallas. Often it was Vick who was really pastoring the church in Dallas, but you know, on, on the hierarchy, Norris was the pastor, and he would show up when he wanted to. Vic ended up being the pastor of this church in Detroit. Here's the church in Detroit. The church in Detroit was Temple Baptist Church. My wife and I were married in Temple Baptist Church. You were married in Temple Baptist Church. So, hey, they stay together. We were married in Temple Baptist Church. Um, Temple Baptist Church, uh, in the 90s, moved or maybe the late 80s, but they moved to Plymouth. And they were Temple Baptist Church for a few years until they changed their name to Northridge. So this is, that's the origin of Northridge. It comes out of, comes out of that. you got other groups and subgroups, but that just gives you some idea. And then lastly, there's the fundamentalists. I've already introduced that idea. 
people who believed in the fundamentals came out of groups that didn't, so they separated from those. During the 19th century, the 1800s, many false doctrines infiltrated the so-called mainline denominations. These views, I should say, were mostly imported from Europe and included higher criticism of the Bible, evolution, socialism. As these slowly began to be propagated by professors in the seminaries, men of faith took a biblical stand and separated from them. Early in the last century, the 1900s, a tract was circulated that sought to combat these false doctrines called the fundamentals. Those who adhered to these basic doctrines of orthodoxy were called the fundamentalists. As a result of the ensuing historic battle between modernism, that is liberalism and fundamentalism, many schools and organizations were born like Westminster Theological Seminary General Association that I already mentioned came out of the Northern Baptist Convention. Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia started out of Princeton Seminary, Presbyterian. Princeton, as, as did Harvard and Yale many years before, started as Christian institutions. But Princeton began teaching liberalism. So you had five guys who left the faculty of Princeton, moved 30 miles, 50 miles, something like that, away to Philadelphia and established Westminster Theological Seminary in the early 1930s. And uh, I had the privilege of taking classes, doctoral classes, at Westminster Theological Seminary. One of the founders of Westminster was a guy named J. Gresham Machen. Uh, the first building that I walked into when I went to Westminster Seminary was called Machen Hall. There's a big portrait of Machen there. And knowing this history, it's just it was really cool to go there because this was founded by men of conviction. And the good news is Westminster still stands for stands for the Bible. Still stands on the Bible and on, on truth. One of last paragraph, one of the leading fundamentalists, you saw his name a couple of times on the prior page, was William Bell Riley of Minneapolis. A guy named Richard uh, Clearwaters, R Richard V. Clearwaters, R. V. Clearwaters, came under the influence of Riley in Minneapolis. Uh, R. V. Clearwaters became the pastor for decades of Fourth Baptist Church in Minneapolis. Still there, still exists. It's a big fundamental church. They have a seminary called Central Baptist Seminary there, Fourth Baptist Church. R. V. Clearwaters came under the influence of, of Riley. He pastored this big Fourth Baptist Church, did Clearwaters. Rollin McCune was a protege of R. V. Clearwaters. Um, of R. V. Clearwaters for, for many years. In fact, uh, many thought that Dr. McCune would become the pastor of Fourth Baptist after Clearwaters left. That that didn't happen. Dr. McCune left Minneapolis in the faculty of Central Baptist Seminary there and came to Detroit in 1981. He became the president of Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary. Two years later, did you guys come in 83, 84? Um, yeah, so two or three years later, Dr. Combs comes on faculty. Dr. McCabe comes at the same time. These guys, these guys were all trained and got their doctorates from Grace Seminary in Winona Lake that I told you about earlier. 
So Dr. McCune uh, becomes the, the president there, and I had the great privilege of being able to sit under those guys for that period of time. So I tell you that piece just so you know where we fit into this whole morass of what I've been telling you about over the last several weeks, that this is how our church then came into being, and then this is where our church fits into this uh, stream of, of doctrine, okay? All right.